Before we begin this final episode of Season 5, I want to give you a little preview of our next season of Jury Duty. Season 6 will focus on the New Jersey attempted murder trial of Michael Barrison. Barrison, an Olympic athlete and equestrian trainer, did not dispute that he was trying to kill his student, Lauren Kanarik, and her boyfriend, Robert Goodwin. Instead, his lawyers argued he was not guilty because he was trying to defend himself and because he was insane. Here's a taste of what you will hear. Now, Michael had been calling the police on us for reasons that we didn't even know why. So I walked over to him and said, how do you plan to make this better? Within the minute I started talking, he pulled out a gun and shot me once, twice, directly in the chest. Help. I'm in fear of my life. Those are the cries for help from Michael Barrison, an Olympic athlete, a world-class massage trainer, a man who on the outside appeared strong, confident, in total control, a man who worked his way up to the top of the ladder, the top of his field, but behind the scenes, was struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, even delusions. Join us starting October 3rd for Season 6 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison. Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This is the final episode of this fifth season of our podcast, a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We have presented a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John has taken us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I continued our discussion of the defense closing arguments in the trial. In this final episode, we conclude that conversation, and then I offer John the opportunity to reflect on the impact on his life of the nine years that he worked on this case. That's all coming up right after the break. 
that Mrs. Durst was alive after January 31st on February 1st, 1982, between 9 and 11 a.m., which completely contradicts the idea that she died in the house on January 31st. And why is that? Because she spoke with Dr. Dean Albert Cooperman at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. Dr. Cooperman was a brilliant and accomplished man who was at his full strength in 1982 when he remembered speaking to Kathy. You heard testimony that Kathy actually called Assistant Dean of Students, Dr. Gene Cook's office, whose secretary then transferred the call to Dean Cooperman, uh, Dr. Cook was not in. Dr. Cooperman testified, this is a question from Mr. Balian, and Dr. Cook warned you before he took off the week of February 1st to be on the lookout for Kathy Durst calling in ill, didn't he? He did alert me to that fact. Yes, keyword fact. And he didn't alert you to any other student, did he? No. That's why the parade of doctors who were classmates who said she'd never do that is nonsense. But that was just to get you to take your eye off the ball. I was listening to the memorials for 9-11 the other day, and I had a lot of folks from New York, there's so many of the people that perished. And you can hear the New York accents when they're reading the names. It dawned on me. Dean Cooperman knows a New York accent. Kathy had a New York accent. Susan Berman from the West Coast speaks differently than Kathy Durst, who grew up and spent her whole life in New York. Dean Cooperman told that to the police 38 years ago. This learned man, he knew her. He says, I spoke to her. Well, he knows what she sounds like, or you don't say that. He heard her. It was not until he was pressured to question his memory that he ever questioned himself. However, his memory was fresh when he first reported it, and in the multiple interviews before a slight change of mind. Because Kathy called the medical school, that would mean she was not killed in the South Salem home, as the prosecution stated. Kathy was not killed by Bob, and their entire case is based on this false premise. Well, so first of all, given Susan's, what did Dick call it, fabulosity, do you think for a second that Susan could not have adopted a New York accent considering she lived there for years? And does that not sound like exactly what she was doing? She's also sick when she's calling. And again, Dr. Cooperman is not listening to this going, I wonder if this is Kathy on the phone. So problem with that whole argument is that in the end, it requires the listener to have some level of suspicion while it's going on, or they're not going to remember or even be aware of subtle details like that. Now, the idea that Kathy would have made the call was absurd for all the reasons that we said. But another problem that they had is, and we argued, okay, let's assume Kathy made the call. Where is she? So the problem isn't just the absurdity of the call. The problem is, is that Kathy fell off the face of the earth on January 31st, 1982. And if she made that call, where is she? And they don't have an answer. You remember at one point, Chesnoff made the comment in cross-examining one of the witnesses, well, that Kathy could have been hit by a bus. The question was, well, she got off the train. She, how do you know she could have been hit by a bus? And I'm listening to this going, oh, my God, are you kidding me? I mean, 
Obviously, Carrie, if Kathy were hit by a bus, we would have Kathy's body. So that's the kind of thing. The only time that the defense was worse than when they just did whatever they were going to do without apparently putting much thought into it was when they would react to evidence they heard and come up with questions. How could you possibly ask such a question? How did that make it past the first, you know, synapse that someone has? It just doesn't work. That was over and over and over and over again. So the closing befitted the rest of the presentation. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Next in our discussion, I see John Lewin's reaction to these comments from David Chesnoff. Well, I mentioned to you earlier that you heard from Dr. Elizabeth Loftus who is an internationally known psychologist and a distinguished professor at the University of California. In an extremely, what I would call, demeaning cross-examination, the state attempted to diminish the science of memory. It's a recognized science. Dr. Loftus' lifetime of research has focused on human memory, eyewitness testimony, and also on courtroom procedure. She's not some hired gun as was suggested, she is respected and an internationally known scholar. The prosecution tried to belitter her on cross-examination, spending really no time on the science, but much time criticizing who she represents. As a lawyer and as jurors, I want you to rely on the science. She testified at trial about the workings of human memory the effects of suggestion on memory, the mechanism of creation of false memories, and the characteristics of false memories. Moreover, she identified some of the suggestive activities that occurred in the current case, such as leading questions and outside external information, including media, affecting the testimony of witnesses. John, when Chestnut brought up Dr. Loftus during his closing, what went through your mind? So I thought that it was incredible. Again, I knew from the very first moment that they were calling her that if they understood what she does, that the only value she would have is to argue that these innocent, that these witnesses were being honest but mistaken. That's the only thing she asked. I also knew that in the context of this case, it was going to be impossible because many of the witnesses did not know each other. And the first statement that we could document from Marion Barnes, she had told her friend at the New York Times about that statement from Susan well before it had ever been published anywhere about the call to the dean, et cetera. So it doesn't work. I mean, if your position is going to be, hey, these witnesses are wrong, and they're wrong because they had information imputed to them that wasn't true. Well, if we can prove without any doubt that that information was given by the witness prior to anybody being able to argue 
that they had such false information to begin with, it's over. It doesn't work. So I knew from day one that they had a problem with Loftus. I also knew from day one that they didn't understand that. They called Loftus because I think she was expensive and a big name. She'll help. No concept of what are you going to use her for, what's her testimony going to be, what's her history, has Sherrod been cross-examined by these people before, none of that. So she gets up and she testifies. But the problem is, is during their case, they had also argued the witnesses were lying, and they had argued in their cross-examination, their questions, that, well, Susan could have made up the information. So they had three inconsistent theories. So I could have dealt with Loftus very quickly. I chose not to because I wanted to make sure that I gutted her. I wanted it clear to the jury who she was, and I felt that the, the worse that I made her look, the worse that I made Durst look. So I wasn't going to let up. I could have made her my witness very easily. At one point in time, and I waited, she finally admitted that, yes, out of those three scenarios, the only one she could help with was honest but mistaken. And by the way, she would never say, so were you told what the defense was in this case? Were you told, you know, what was your purpose? So that was bad enough. Then Bob gets up, and Bob literally says, Oh, no, I mean, I'm not debating that the witnesses said that. I know Susan told them that. So Bob, in one foul swoop, completely eliminated the Loftus' testimony. It's as if Chesnoff didn't hear Bob's testimony. So he gets up, and I call it whistling through the graveyard. You're just going to pretend that that evidence wasn't in front of the jury. You're just going to imagine Bob never testified. So the word that I can say for that argument, and the one that comes to mind is, it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed for him. Past angry, past, are you kidding me? It was, wow, that is really humiliating. Because I'm watching the jurors, not just that he is lying to them. I mean, that's bad enough. But the problem is, what the jurors end up saying is, is basically, how dumb did he think we were? So he didn't just humiliate himself, he deeply insulted the jurors. So not an argument that he should have made, but, you know, get in line. In the next part of our conversation, I asked John to assess the defense team's attempt to argue that the LAPD had tunnel vision for Robert Durst as Susan Berman's killer and ignored other possible suspects. So during their closing, the defense made a lot of hay about the LAPD not pursuing other possible leads, other possible Susan enemies. They made the argument that there was another intruder and that Susan's planner not having anything about Bob coming was a red herring. What did you make of all that? Well, they were terrible arguments. None of them made any sense. First of all, one of the ways that we got them is we litigated everything. And we won the motion that they were not allowed to present third-party culpability evidence regarding Niall Brenner regarding D-Bask and the landlady, or regarding the mob. Now, what does that mean? You're always free as defense attorney to say somebody else did it, okay? You're always free to do that. What you cannot do is to put on evidence that that person did it if you don't meet the standard. And they didn't meet the standard. Now, we would have been happy strategically. Originally, what I wanted them to do was I wanted them to put on evidence of all three. So one thing that defense attorneys do that's not very bright is that instead of picking one good horse to ride, 
or the best horse available, they try to ride three horses going three different directions. So in other words, if you're going to argue, which they did in motion, you're going to argue, well, Niall Brenner killed her, or Dee Baskin killed her, or the mob killed her, or she was killed by a burglar. Those are four mutually inconsistent theories, meaning at the very most, only one of them can be true and three of them are not accurate. So the problem is that when you do that, you allow me to get up there and talk about how desperate they are, how they're throwing in the kitchen sink, and how they will put on anything they can do to push the blame the other way. Now, we ended up keeping all of it out because my concern was that what if they're smart enough at some point to only focus on one of the four? Now, I don't think any of them are going to be very good. But that being said, they still have a right to argue somebody else did it. They have a right to say it could have been a burglar. So here's the difference. You can always argue it could have been a burglar. You can't put on evidence saying, hey, this guy, John Smith, was a burglar, and he has four break-ins near the crime scene, unless you can meet what's called the Hall Standard, where there's some evidence connecting him to the crime. Mere motive is not enough. You can't put that on. So those were absurd arguments that were not helpful. The day planner, I mean, seriously, that's a red herring. I mean, if we would have shown a video of the actual murder, they would have said it was a red herring. So, you know, that's just defense attorney speak. The jurors understood. So I could have gotten up and not given any rebuttal at all because Habib did a brilliant job in closing and their arguments were terrible. But the way that I approach my cases is I go full bore, 200 miles an hour from start to finish. My approach and my goal and my team's goal was we will defeat them. We will fight every battle and we will annihilate them until there's nothing left every time because I'm going to make it. And I actually argue this, and I argue this in this case. I will say something like, hey, listen, some of you are probably saying, oh, my God, will this guy ever shut up? But I will tell the jury, listen, I know, you're going, will he ever shut up? There's something you need to understand. I don't have a scoreboard. This isn't the NFL, and I'm up 42 to nothing. I can take a knee. You have an extremely important job, and the only way you can do your job effectively is if I do my job effectively. And let me tell you the worst thing that can happen to a prosecutor. The worst thing that can happen to a prosecutor is after a hung jury or a not guilty verdict, a juror comes up to that prosecutor and says, hey, you know what? I just wish when the defense said so-and-so, you never addressed it. So I'm going to take some time here, and I'm going to address every point they made. And I hope you all will understand the following. Three people were killed by Bob Durst. This is an incredibly important case for the people of the state of California, for those victims, and for Bob Durst. So if this takes a little bit longer for me to do my job, please understand. So that's what we do. That's what we did. And uh, that's what I do in every case. They attacked the Nick Saban testimony on two bases, one that he initially denied that Durst made any incriminating statements, and secondly, that the prosecution was threatening Nick's wife. What was your response to that? So the issue that we had threatened Cherry Chapin was factually untrue. Now, I can't tell you whether they just didn't know the evidence or whether they just made it up, but the evidence was very clear. Terry Chavin called us and said, listen, Nick is not telling you the truth. We did not bother Terry Chavin at all. In fact, if you go back, 
from one of the very first conversations, Nick told us that he did not want us to call Terry. And I told him, hey, Nick, listen, for now, basically, I will do that for you. And the reason he didn't want us to call Terry, which he would later admit is because he knew, one, Terry knew the truth, and he knew, number two, Terry would end up giving it up. Now, what ended up happening is Terry ended up calling us in July and telling us that here's what happened, and that's what set it up with Nick. Now, another incomprehensibly inept strategic blunder by the defense was this. We wanted to get in all of the prior interviews with Nick Chavin, and I think that Wyndham would have allowed them in in the end because the defense was alleging that Nick was lying and that we had somehow been inappropriate with Nick and had not accepted his answers, et cetera. The original interviews, which everyone was taped, demonstrated to us one, if you remember, Nick from the very first interview admitted that he had information but wasn't ready to share it. And two, it showed Nick's evolution. So level one analysis as well. Nick Chavin is lying, and he's saying Bob never told me anything. So we're going to play that, and we're going to show, see, Nick said Bob didn't tell him that. Well, level two or three or five or ten analysis is, okay, yep, Nick Chavin is saying that, but he's lying when he's saying that, and here's how you know he's lying. If you're going to make an argument that Nick was lying when he talked about Bob's confession, I think it was completely inept of the defense to say, and the proof of that, if you listen to his earlier statement where he's saying, no, I don't know anything, Bob never said anything, yeah, that will prove that Nick's alleged confession was untrue. Our view was it's the opposite. Nick always said from day one he had information. It's clear when you listen to it that Nick was covering for his friend. So this is the difference, and this is where they really screwed up. There's a reason why the hardest domestic violence cases to try are not ones with hostile victims. They are ones with cooperative victims for the police. So when you have a woman who comes in and says, my husband did X, Y, Z to me, he beat me, he did this. Well, now the defense can bring up, well, isn't it true you're going through a divorce? Isn't it true that, you know, he cheated on you? In other words, they can come up with reasons why you would be making it up in line. When the victim comes in and says, no, he never hit me. I lied when I told the police he hit me. Then you remove the best argument the defense has, which is that, see, this person has their own issues with the defendant and is just trying to falsely implicate them. That's what happened with Nick. The fact that Nick refused to admit for months what he knew made it extremely difficult for them to argue that, yep, Nick just has a bone to pick with Bob, Nick is just trying to implicate Bob falsely, etc. When you combine that with the fact that DeGaron is showing up at Nick's office coming from Texas and the fact that you listen to the call between Bob and Nick, where Bob is bringing up the restaurant within 30 seconds after not having talked to Nick in years, it really, I think, buttressed Nick's credibility. So remember, they wanted that in. So we never even had to push to bring it in because the defense wanted it. And that's another example of I told the defense when that happened, listen, I don't really think that's admissible. I knew it was because I wanted them to think I didn't want it in. That was another in 50 different things in this case where they based their decision on the opposite of whether I wanted something in or out. So their attacks on Nick in closing were completely ineffective. They didn't make any sense. And I don't think there's a juror out there that didn't believe absolutely 
that Bob confessed to Nick. Now, what I think is more interesting, because we know the confession happened, is if you think about it, that's the only time in this whole, Bob's whole life that we know of, where Bob intentionally confessed. And what do I mean by that? Well, Bob had a lot of slip-ups, you know, during my interviews, during Andrew's interviews, where you can argue that he confessed. But those confessions were accidental. I don't believe Bob ever told Emily that he did it, or Debbie, etc. You know, Doug Oliver, maybe he confessed to Doug, I don't know. Susan was the other person he confessed to. But that's different. He didn't confess to Susan. He asked for Susan's help. And by the way, I would bet you any amount of money that whatever he told Susan about how Kathy died, he said it was an accident. So the only true voluntary confession he made in this entire case was to Nick, and it was dead on true. It was her and me. I had no choice. So what you end up asking yourself is, what made Bob do that? Why would he, why Nick? And I think there's two reasons. Number one, Bob actually, despite the fact that Bob is a narcissistic psychopath, Bob felt bad that he had to kill Susan. He did not want to kill her. And I think he wanted Nick to understand that he didn't want to kill her. Bob killed Susan because he was trapped. And he was trapped. Turns out it was already done, but he wanted Nick to understand that, and he felt that Nick would never say anything, and he felt, as he's always said, that that case was never going to be real. But I think that's very interesting. That's the one intentional confession that Bob made in this whole case, the only one. In their closing, the defense asked three rhetorical questions, and I'm going to enumerate them and ask for your response to each of them. Why would Bob have given Susan cash if he was going to kill her? Okay, so number one, Bob did not think this out very well. I do not believe that at the time that he sent Susan that money that he had made up his mind that he was going to kill her. Even if he had, he needed money, and Bob needed to get her money, and in the end, Bob is so used to getting away, doing whatever he wants, that Bob just does it. So that's an argument, which is really what this, here's what that argument really is. How could Bob be so stupid as to send her cash? That's really what that argument is. And why would he do it if he didn't need to? Because he's going to kill her. Well, again, we already know that Bob does a lot of stupid things. So, for instance, why would Bob tell Mike Strzok that he had drinks with Bill Mayer? I mean, that's patently untrue, and Mike Strzok is going to call Bill Mayer and find out it's untrue. Now, that's not in dispute. We know Bob said that, and we know it's a lie. So why would he say it? Well, because Bob is so privileged and so self-involved and so I don't have to follow the rules that Bob doesn't even want to use the energy that it takes to cover up his crime. So the idea that, in essence, yeah, Bob would never have done that, that was, again, another really foolish argument. Uh, it didn't make any sense for the reasons I just said. They also asked, why would Bob have written the cadaver note if he'd killed Susan? Well, we, we know why Bob wrote the cadaver note. That's not hard at all. The first question is, why would anybody have written a note like that? And the answer is, the only person who would write a note like that is somebody who really cares about having Susan found. That's not going to be anybody else in this case. So Bob wrote the note because Bob wanted Susan buried. Bob did not kill Susan out of hatred or anger. Bob killed Susan out of self-preservation. And we know that. That's what he told Nick, and I think that was true. Bob didn't want to kill her. Bob felt he had to. And by the way, he wasn't wrong. It was her or him. He didn't have a choice. 
his problem was he didn't realize she'd already told half the planet about it. So, yeah, that argument makes no sense. And then finally, if Bob killed Kathy and Morris and Susan, why did he leave Susan's body in her house when he got rid of Morris's and Kathy's? That was absolutely patently absurd. The reason that Bob moved Kathy's body is because his wife's body being found in the house where they lived together would be incredibly incriminating. He moved Morris's body because Morris's dead body and all the blood being found in the place where Bob lived would have instantly incriminated Susan's body being found in her own house when Bob lived thousands of miles away and when there's no supposed record that he was ever there is not incriminating. They made a similar argument to the idea of, well, the Morris situation with Bob admits to doing is different than Susan and Kathy because whoever killed Kathy left no evidence, and the same with Susan. Well, the difference is, is that very likely the Kathy situation, if you look at Morris and you change one little aspect of this case and you make it so that Bob dumps Morris's body parts in the bayou or Bob dumps it in Galveston Bay and doesn't have the identification in the bag to trace back to his house. If that happens, they never realize who Morris is. If they do, it's going to be months later. And there's going to be no gun recovered, no evidence recovered from the apartment. It's going to look like, get ready, Kathy. So Bob got the good fortune that the police never looked in his place in South Salem right after the homicide. He did not get that luck with Morris because of mistakes he made. So it's not that the Kathy case was so brilliantly executed or the Susan case so brilliantly executed and Morris was just a sloppy killing. Kathy likely had similar evidence. He just got lucky that they never looked. And Susan was completely different because, let's face it, I never have argued, and I'm very certain, Bob did not decide in advance, I'm going to go kill Kathy. I think it's even arguable and probably likely that Bob did not decide, certainly very much in advance, he was going to kill Morris. Susan, he plotted. When he flew out and got the car and drove down there, so you know that Bob had decided to murder Susan when he bought the tickets to go to San Francisco and Rika instead of just going down to L.A. So he planned this out. Susan's was a premeditated, not just premeditated, but pre-planned well in advance, days, weeks in advance. So that's why it's different. There's one last point that I'm going to let you close on, which was the defense argument as they were wrapping up their closing. They seemed to understand that Nick Haven's testimony was pretty key. And so they said... I want to leave you with the following. I want you to imagine that one of your relatives is very sick in the hospital, basically on life support. And a decision has to be made as to whether or not you say enough is enough. You're going to rely heavily on what the doctor says. And you walk into the room to talk to the doctor, and the doctor is Nick Chavin. Would you rely on Nick Chavin to decide that important issue in your life, or would you run from the hospital room? Yeah, this comes under the heading, the, the analogy that Chesnoff brought up about what if Nick Chavin is a doctor. I always thought that they did their worst work when they actually just responded to things they didn't know were coming. But they did equally horrific work when they would actually come up with. So in advance, Chesnoff decides, I'm going to make this argument. And the argument is, I'm going to say that you should distrust Nick 
Because if Nick were a doctor coming to you saying, I'm taking care of your loved one, you wouldn't want him to take care of you. Well, there's a few problems there. One, Nick's not a doctor. So the idea of Dr. Nick Chavin or not Dr. Nick Chavin, advertising executive Nick Chavin, coming to provide critical care for your loved one seems far-fetched. It also has nothing to do with credibility. You know, I mean, when I heard it, I just, I laughed at it. It was, again, and the word that comes to mind is embarrassing, if not humiliating. How can a lawyer make an argument like that? There were so many times during this trial where I was floored, where I would just think, oh, my God. I mean, did they just say that? Did they just make that argument? Did they just make that objection? Did they actually just say what I heard them say? And I would be in shock. Finally, I offered John the opportunity to reflect on how this case has impacted him. John, you worked on this case, what, eight years? Yeah, I started in January of 2013, and I finished it. I was still assisting New York with getting their stuff up until Bob died. This case ended for me when Bob died, nine years. Wow. How did your life change during that time? What were the major personal events in your life during that time? Well, when I started the case in 2013, my son was 10 and my daughter was 9. By the time they finished, they were both at USC. One was there and one had been accepted. So it's a lot of time. You know, a big change for me, which was very difficult, was in 2013, I got my first grade Dane tank and he was a part of my interview with Bob and I loved him like my third kid. And I lost him in 2017 at age four, very suddenly. I ended up getting two other great games, and I have them. They're four and a half. In terms of my professional life, you know, this was a career case. I'll never have another case like this. I loved it from first time I looked at it until the end. I think whatever your career is, what you want is you want the ultimate challenge And you want it to occur when you think you're in a position to meet the challenge. And so when this case started, I was 49 years old. I was a very experienced trial lawyer, a very experienced cold case homicide investigator. And I was able to put into practice everything I'd ever learned doing these cases. What else changed? Well, I got to work with some of the best lawyers Every single person on this case, and I'm not just saying this, every single person on this case is not just a friend. They are a close, close friend. Every single person who worked on it. And it started with Habib. He and I are extremely close. I got to work with him all these years. I now actually, it's kind of funny. So he became the assistant head deputy midway through the Durst prosecution, which means that technically I report to him, but I was in charge of this case. So Habib is technically, he's in my chain of command. He and my boss, uh, Craig Hum, I report to, but I was in charge of the case. So I got to work with him, which was incredible. I got to work, the original people on the case were me and Habib. My friend, Beth Silverman, who I'm very close to, started on the investigation, and then Ethan Milius was with me from the start, and I continue to work on cases with him. He is the best multimedia person at at doing the presentations for trial, which is extremely difficult. He has the most important skill set on the whole case. I got to work with him. The original lawyers that they brought in to work with me were Eugene Miata. He's the only one I didn't know. 
They brought in Eugene Serica Kim, who I knew, who's a brilliant lawyer. She was pregnant. She wasn't on the case for very long. And one of my ex-law clerks named Natalie Schachter, one of the best writers, if not the best writer that I've ever worked with. They were on the case with me at the beginning. When we lost Serica to pregnancy, we still needed help, and we got a guy named Rob Britton. And Rob Britton was the other person I didn't know before the case, and Rob worked just tirelessly. He was basically doing two jobs, hardcore and working with us. We had him up until previous. Uh, when I had to give Natalie back after six months, we got a young lawyer, and I had requested, I wanted somebody who had big firm experience and who could write, because I was prepared for them to have 20 lawyers at a big firm just papering us to death. And I wanted a guy named David Yaroslavsky who was a young lawyer in juvenile. I didn't know Dave. I'd heard great things about him, and I was able to get him on the team. Dave stayed with us until he got appointed to the bench. He became a judge. And then, finally, to replace him and help me with trial, I was able to get Tim Henderson. He had been the law clerk. He, Ethan, and I had tried the last case. So I got to work with just the best lawyers that I know, all of whom I am very close to. I still talk to almost every one of these people. Most of them I just named, I talk to every day. Everybody I talk to periodically, and we're close. So that was an incredible experience. I'll never have that again. I really enjoyed it. It was the case of a career. I feel blessed to have been able to do it, and I feel really thankful that Durst made it through the verdict. Very thankful for that. It was a hell of a ride. One I won't see again. You know, I'm glad it happened to me when I was, you know, near the end of my career. It's kind of like if you're a 16-year-old kid and the first car you drive is a Porsche, where do you go from there? You want to get the ultimate later on in life, later on in your career, when you can appreciate it. And that's what I have. So now I'm, you know, trying to take the next step you know, in my life, and I'm doing other cases. I'd be lying if I said that I think any of them are as interesting as Durst. I don't think I'll ever find one. That's the most interesting case. Not that I'm aware that I've worked on. I think it's the most interesting case anybody's ever worked on. It was fascinating, and the main thing that made it so fascinating was Bob. Bob is unique. He is one of a kind. We will never see the likes of him again. Well, John Lewin, thank you for all of your time on this and for all of your insight, and good luck with whatever the future may hold. Thanks very much. Good luck to you as well. That concludes this season of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us for our next season where we will cover the double-attempted homicide trial of Michael Barrison. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next season of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrisone.